Hi, my name is Mike Herbster. I'm privileged to be the director of Southland Christian Camp Ministries. For over 25 years, Southland has centered itself around the ministry of preaching. We believe that God uses the foolishness of preaching to convict hearts and transform lives. Our prayer is that today's sermon would push you to become more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As you listen, would you carefully evaluate your life in light of God's Word and take the appropriate action to grow in your walk with Him? We hope that you will enjoy today's message. Would you agree with me that God has blessed America? Has He not? He really has. This has been a God-blessed nation from its beginning. And we celebrate that beginning from 1776 on the 4th of July. Most of you know historically that there were several days leading up to the signing of that Declaration of Independence. And I think, I think, uh, uh, I think if I remember correctly, John Hancock, who certainly wrote his name the biggest, and you know the statement he made. He said, the king over there is losing his eyesight. I want to make sure he sees my name. That's why his name is so large, larger than others. And we often say, put your John Hancock on this. Uh, I also read that John Hancock expressed that his hand was trembling as he wrote his name. I mean, listen, this was big stuff, what they were declaring. And we live all these 200 and what, 30, 30 34 years after the fact. I, I'm probably, my math is not working real quick. Some of you will be torn up for the whole service. You'll be sitting there trying, okay, let's say carry the one. Uh, whatever it is, you know, we're so used to it now that uh, we, are, we are in a position where we don't realize what those men were declaring. Those 13 colonies and their representatives getting together there in Philadelphia to declare that they were going to say, we are going to be independent. Why, why, is, why has America been so, so blessed? Are there other nations that are beautiful? Yeah, yeah. There's some good, beautiful lands across the globe, but they've not seen what we've seen here in America. They really haven't. Um, do they have beautiful farmlands in other places? Yes, but not like what we've seen and what has been produced here in America. Why is that? Why, what is the deal? There's only one answer. God has blessed this nation. Because from its beginning, there was a dependence upon God, a declaration of <coughs> independence from Great Britain, but you read the Declaration of Independence and you will see a total dependence upon a sovereign God. I wish I could uh, take what Brother Mike said as he stood down here and he just was speaking from his heart. There was no memorized speech. What he was declaring down here earlier, I thought, uh, I hope that's recorded because that, that was, uh, it was prolific. It was very powerful, some things that he was saying there. Uh, Righteousness exalts a nation. And that's why I do fear for America in many ways, because we have run from righteousness. Because sin 
that same verse says, is a reproach to any people. And the truth of the matter is, this nation in times of fear, war, and concern about, are we going to be safe? Churches swelled. People came running back, oh God, please help us. How many of you were alive? It seems funny to have to ask this, but how many of you were alive on 9-11-2001? All right, there's a good portion of you that have been born after the fact. That has been our Pearl Harbor, a date that we will always remember. I was preaching in California that week on that Tuesday, and uh, the pastor said to me, what are we going to do tonight? I said, you know, Pastor, there's no script for this. I don't know. We don't know what else to expect. Don't know what else is going to happen. I don't know. He said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, I'm going to put a message out on the church's marquee advertisement out there that we're just going to open it up for people to come for special prayer for America. You could, it was amazing how many people just came into church that night. People who never went to church. Looking for answers. In fact, some, somebody, uh, as I was up, someone just voiced out real quickly, is there anything about this in the Bible, what just happened today? Is there anything about this in Revelation? You know, they were wanting answers. Is it going to happen again? Do you know something? That, you know, I didn't have answers, except to point them to the gospel. That's what I could do. We had prayer for America that night. Our president, George W., called for a special day of prayer and gathered uh, uh, political leaders and others into that church in Washington, D.C., and I, was, I just wept as the choirs sang and, and uh, preachers spoke and things were expressed as they were. I mean, I was, I was just uh, moved. Our nation was, was rallying together and crying out for God, and then when things kind of settled down, the church is emptied. Those who keep the records say that the numbers before 9-11 were higher than what they were after 9-11. After the surge, people began to drop out, and we have even less people attending church now to hear the Bible. During back in the days of... Uh, I don't want to be negative, because this is a great day, a day of celebration, but there was a day uh, where... Uh, uh, the previous uh, George Bush had declared war and Desert Storm took place and everybody spoke about Stormin' Norman Schwarzkopf and, and uh, he, he led the troops into battle and quickly we, uh, we ousted uh, the enemy down in Kuwait and had some real turnaround and, and at the end of it all, you know what Americans were saying? Boy, I tell you what, have we got the intelligence now. Have we got the smart rockets? And boy, we've got, we got Storm and Norman, and we've got... That's not the way it was when we were founding this country. Uh, this country was founded upon, oh God, only you can help us. And we're willing to die. We're putting our life on the line. And as the group sang tonight, red represents the blood that has been shed through the years. Speaking of that, how many of you, men and women, have been a part of any part of the military down through the uh, years? How many of you have been part of the military? I know this is not Veterans Day or Memorial Day, but thank the Lord for you. 
I never was uh, a part of anything militarily except for the matter of prayer for our nation. My dad fought in the Pacific Theater in World War II. It's interesting. You ever met someone who was in World War II? They don't talk much about it. They tell me that when they get up later on in years, they begin to open up <coughs> and talk about some of the things they saw. But for the most part, they just said, no, nah, I don't want to talk about it. And dad didn't talk about it. I couldn't get much out of him. And of course, my dad died when I was a young boy, so I didn't have future years with him to talk to him. We owe a debt to the founding fathers. We owe a debt to those who have fought for our freedoms through the years. And I, I found a quote years ago, and I re-looked it up. That's not a good word, but you got it. I, I found it again. John Adams wrote a letter to his wife, Abigail Adams, after the signing of the Declaration, or as they were getting ready for it. He wrote the letter on July the 3rd, 1776. He said, the day has passed. The second day of July, you know, he... He was uh, the, the, this on, the, on July the 2nd, they were organizing things. They didn't sign until the 4th. But anyway, he said, The second day of July, 1776, the day the Continental Congress approved a resolution for independence, will be the most memorable epic in the history of America. Well, he was off a couple of days, but his, his intent was real. He said, I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. Well, he was like a prophet. He said, it ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows, games, sports, guns. How about that? Uh, bells, bonfires, and, are you ready for this, illuminations. I don't think they had fireworks back in the 1700s, but he spoke about some type of illuminations. He said, from one end of this continent to the other, from this time forward, forevermore. Again, he was prophetic in his words. He said, it's a day of celebration, and so I celebrate with you. I'm, I, uh, I didn't come prepared with a red, white, and blue shirt. I've been looking at you all uh, dressed up all day long. Did you? Is Micah around? Micah Herbster, are you upstairs or is he uh, gone somewhere? Did you see his shoes that he was wearing tonight? Unbelievable. If you weren't up close, you couldn't see it. It's just incredible. I mean, they were. They were I, I wanted to salute his shoes, you know. I mean, his shoes look like the American flag. It was great. Anyway. I celebrate America with you, and I don't have a message on America except what has just already been done. I, don't you just love Southland? They don't do anything second class. They really don't. Everything is just done with great glory to the Lord, and it's a blessing and ministry to us. This wasn't thrown together, folks. I'm not a musician, and I don't understand all the intricacies of music dynamics, but the songs and the brass and everything that we got to enjoy and have brought to us tonight, you just don't put that together in a couple of minutes. That took a lot of preparation. So staff that's still in here, that was a part of it all, we thank you. We don't take for granted what you're doing. By the way, yes, amen. Very good, very good. 
I walked through the kitchen tonight just to get a quick uh, to-go plate. Wasn't that food? It was all right. It was uh, incredible tonight. I filled up a little too much. I don't normally eat before I preach because it it uh, slows me down and makes me makes me preach shorter, and I hate that. And so, uh, but I did tonight. And so, in closing. Uh, I, I <laughs> no, wait, uh, the truth is, <laughs> I walked through the kitchen and I saw that bunch of folks laboring, and I mean, they were working with a smile on their face. They've been on their feet much of the day, and uh, they're this operational group of people that make things click for us. We got a lot of expressions of gratitude we need to make. Mark chapter 5, would you go there with me tonight? Mark chapter 5, if you would, please. Again, like everyone else has said, I hope you've had a great day. Enjoyed being with the uh, couples earlier this morning, and I know those of you with Scripture memory uh, have had some uh, chapels and classes and sessions, and I, 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 uh, I trust that your heart's been challenged and stirred with your meetings as well. And I'm just so glad we get to be together uh, every night. Now, I'm going to just say something to you right from the front couple of things, a couple of disclaimers. I'm just going to be real perfectly honest with you, all right? If you came tonight looking for a, a great sermon outline and you love alliteration and stuff like that, you came on the wrong night, okay? I'm just telling you. The more important thing I want to tell you is this. When I'm finished tonight, I know I'm going to feel like I did not do justice to this passage. Have you ever had passages in the Bible that just jump off the pages of Scripture and um, we've often said slaps you in the face or grabs your heart? It was probably right about five years ago. I was out running and uh, I'd been meditating here on Mark 5 and some things in it. And oh boy, it so gripped my heart. Literally, uh, I had to stop and I wept. I will not do justice to what we're about to read. But I'm going to tell you tonight, this passage and this story, though it's familiar to probably every one of you, if not most of you in this room tonight, it's so familiar. It is a passage that I hope that you'll listen with uh, uh, unshod feet and walk upon the blades of spiritual grass and feel it beneath your soul with a newness and a freshness. Could you? Clean out your spiritual ears and listen once again to something that you've heard for years. It's, it seems like it's two stories, but it's really one story. It's one story inside the other one. And in all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics, they're always together. And I love Mark's account. I just love Mark. Interesting, for what it's worth, anyone who's a Bible scholar or a theologian, you know, Mark is kind of a quick and to-the-point guy. He's kind of a, his key word is immediately or straightway. It's like straightway God, Jesus did this, and straightway this happened. And most of the things he tells are kind of brief vignettes and snippets that Luke took a lot longer with and Matthew took a lot longer with, and Mark was just kind of quick. But in this particular account, uniquely enough, he took more time with his account of it than Matthew and Luke put together. You say, what's the significance of that? Well, I believe that Peter was the one that was with Mark, helping him to convey what we have here in Mark. 
Many people believe this is the gospel of Peter written by John Mark. But nevertheless, I want you to listen to it with brand new ears. Could you do that? And I hope it will encourage your heart. Beginning in Mark chapter 5, verse 21, we read this word. And when Jesus was passed over again by ship unto the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and besought him greatly. So there's an urgency in his words, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her that she may be healed and she shall live. And Jesus went with him and much people followed him and thronged him. Now here comes the story within the story. And a certain woman which had an issue of blood 12 years and had suffered many things of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was nothing bettered but rather grew worse. When she had heard of Jesus, came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway, there's the key word, and straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue or power had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou who touched me? And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, she just got adopted. Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. While he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house. Now we go back to the other part of the story. There came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? As soon, as soon, as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. And he suffered no man to follow him, save Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And he cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and seeth the tumult, and them that wept and wailed greatly. And when he was come in, he saith unto them, Why make ye this ado, and weep? The damsel's not dead, but sleepeth. Notice how professional they were. And they laughed him to scorn. So they went from this weeping and wailing to immediate laughing. They weren't sincere. But when he had put them all out, he taketh the father and the mother of the damsel 
and them that were with him, and entereth in where the damsel was lying. And he took the damsel by the hand, and he said unto her, Talitha, kumai, which is being interpreted damsel or little girl, little dove, I say unto thee, arise. And straightway the damsel rose and walked, for she was of the age of 12 years. And they were astonished with the great, that word great could also have been translated loud, astonishment. And he charged them strictly, straightly, that no man should know it, and commanded that something should be given her to eat. What, what fascinating two stories, and yet one story always put together we have. I don't want to say this irreverently. There's no irreverence in this whatsoever, but I want you to know that when Jesus was on this side of the Sea of Galilee, he was a star. The crowds came to him, so much so that it says he was, when he got the, the boat to the edge of the, of the shore, he was nigh unto the sea. What that is telling us is simply he couldn't go anywhere. He's probably standing in wet mud and dirt. He's standing there. The crowds have gathered around him. He is mobbed. Now, wait a minute. Where has he been? Well, in previous chapter, we'll read in chapter 5 earlier that Jesus has made his way, in fact, in chapter 4, he's made his way from the western side of the Sea of Galilee over to the eastern side, and over there, on the journey going, the disciples had to awaken him and said, Master, do you not care? We're going to perish. We're about to die. This storm is going to take our lives. And, of course, we know the story. Jesus stood up, and wouldn't you have loved to have seen him do it? Wouldn't you have loved to have seen him raise his hand and lift his voice and say, that's enough. Shh, calm down, calm down. I'm telling you, I just hope we can watch it on video someday when we're in heaven. I mean it. I just, I just, maybe, we will, maybe we'll just have perfect knowledge. I'm not trying to be inappropriate. I'm just saying what a beautiful sight it must have been. It shows us that Jesus has power over nature. And he got to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee where this wild man filled with a legion of demons, the maniac of Gadara, comes screaming at him, yelling at him, and uh, Jesus is about to command those demons to come out of him, and the demons say, we know who you are. Please, 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 just let us go inside the swine. And of course, he does. He permits that because he has control not over nature, but he also has control over demons. And those demons went over to the swine, and you know the swine went over the hillside. A couple of thousand swine, a lot of pigs. And what happened? You would think that the people on that uh, eastern side would have said, Whoa, whoa, we've heard about this guy. Look what he's just done. Man, can you come heal my, my uh, sick mother? Could you, you know, I'm having a little trouble with my shoulder. Can you help me here? I mean, I mean you would have thought they would have just reached out and said, We need some help. But no, what did they do? They said, Get out of here. We don't want you around here. Maybe they were angry because some of their livelihood had just died with the swine. That's probably a lot of it. Secondly, maybe they were afraid he knows things about us we don't want anybody else to know about. With a guy that kind of power, uh, he probably knows things about me. I don't want anybody else to know. Why don't you just go ahead and leave? And so Jesus leaves. He's got power over nature. He's got power over demons. He makes his way back over to the western side where the mob and the crowd have gathered. They love him. 
Are they all believers? No, no. But they know what he is, they know what he's done, and they want to see more, and they want to be supplied what he can do. And as he gets off the boat, and out, uh, as he stands on the shore, what happens? Well, the Bible tells us that a man, and we're given his name, Jairus, by name, a synagogue leader. Now, time out. What does that tell you? He was well-known. Everybody knew him. Everybody was aware of who he was. He was the synagogue leader there in Capernaum. Everybody knew Jairus. Not only was he well-known, but, friends, he was wealthy. Uh, he was wealthy because he was a synagogue leader. And I will tell you this, later on when Jesus finally gets to his house, uh, Jairus' house had more than one room, which tells us that he had a sizable house. Most people had just one room in their house. That's about it. That's all they could afford. And yet this man had <coughs> at least two and maybe more, so he was wealthy. He was well-known. He was wealthy, and he's probably well-educated. That's why he had risen to the height of being a synagogue leader. And, and, and the Bible makes a specific statement that gives us his name, Jairus by name, and he was a popular man, and he was honestly well-respected in Capernaum, but when Jesus is there and he, he elbows his way up, I'm going to tell you something, all the popularity in the world and all the respect of the world and all the concern of what people thought about him went out the back door. Why? Because he falls down on his face and he kneels before Jesus. Why? Because he knows who he is. I personally believe we're going to see Jairus in heaven. I think he was a believer. He had seen Jesus heal people there in Capernaum. He had seen the man with a withered hand there in the synagogue that Jesus healed, I'm convinced that Jairus knew who Jesus was. And what does he say? He says, my little daughter is dying. You know, it's amazing when you get desperate, you don't care what people think about you. He's a desperate daddy. My little daughter, she's 12 years old. It's interesting, Jesus has not even been gone 24 hours to the other side, now he's come back, that this girl had gotten so severely sick in those 24 hours, and yet he is a desperate daddy, and he says, would you just come? And he says this, just put your hand on her that she may live. He knows who Jesus is. And I love this, and maybe you even overlooked it. The truth is, the moment that the man expressed what he needed, the Bible says, and Jesus went with him. What does that tell you? It tells you that Jesus cares. He always has and he always will. He cares. He says, all right, let's go. And as he's making his way, he doesn't put him off. They're, they're making their way through the crowd, people bumping into him and so forth. And here comes that other story. What do we have? An unnamed individual. We don't know her name. Why? Well, she's a diseased woman, seriously diseased. Now, commentators and scholars try to figure out what it is she had. She's got an internal bleeding disorder, possibly a tumor, some, something cancerous. She's had it for, are you ready, 12 years. Jairus' daughter is 12 years old. This woman has been bleeding for 12 years. Mark makes it crystal clear she has spent everything she's had on doctors, and she's not any bit better, but she's nothing but worse <laughs> it's interesting when Luke tells this account, uh, you know what Luke was? He was a physician. He says she spent all of her money on doctors, but she wasn't any better. He, he left out that part about she was worse. He, he kind of took it easy on the doctors when, when it came to that. I'm just wondering. But Mark says she wasn't any better. She'd spent everything. She didn't have anything. She'd tried everything. Can I just tell you something? This woman was not even allowed in the synagogue. 
You go read the book of Leviticus and you go read the Levitical law in the, in the, in the Orthodox world of, of, of the Jews, she was not allowed in. Why? She's got a bleeding disorder. You realize that everybody she touched was unclean for at least a day. That means any children, a husband. Many people believe that very possibly the man that was married to her probably divorced her because he thought, what good is this for me? I, I can't be with a woman that she makes me unclean all the time. Every bed she laid on, every chair she sat in, it was unclean. She was not even allowed in the synagogue. So what do you got here? You've got a well-known, wealthy, well-educated, uh, 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 a valuable man to society on one side saying, Jesus, I need you. You've got another woman who nervously, nobody really knows her. The Bible didn't give us her name. She, she's heard that Jesus is coming, and her heart no doubt has faith in it to believe that he can help her. She's tried everything else, and she works her way through the crowd. Did you know that in many of these cases, these women, these people like this would have to hold up something like a napkin or something in front of their face because if you got within five feet of her and her breath got on you, you were considered unclean. So she would have to say, unclean, unclean. So I don't know how she managed her way there, but she got herself there and she reaches up and no doubt touches maybe just one of the four tassels that hung from Jesus' robe. Just simply touch it with her heart thinking, if I may but touch touch his tassel, if I just touch the hem of his garment, I will be made whole. And of course, we know what Jesus does. Who touched me? Now, who in this room thinks Jesus doesn't know who touched him? He knows. He didn't ask for identification. He asked for her to be clarified in front of everybody else. He says, who touched me? And of course, he goes through Peter's statement. You know, come on. Great crowd bumping into you. I mean, I mean, everybody's hitting you and touching you. I mean, what do you mean who touched me? And then that woman falls down before him. Why? Well, it just seems like anytime anybody got close to Jesus in a sincere way, isn't it interesting? They always fell down. When you get serious with the Lord, you worship. And she fell down, and, and I love it. He said, daughter, you're a part of our family now. I know what's in your heart. Daughter. Your faith has made you whole. Go. Make your way. Her life was dramatically, physically, and spiritually changed that day. And some of you sit here tonight and go, Yeah, I know that story. I've heard it all my life. Saw it on a flannel graph board. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. We read it over a few verses, and it seems like, well, that probably took just, you know, a couple of minutes. No, no, no doubt there was conversation that took place. Would you put yourself in the shoes, sandals, whatever, of Jairus while all this was going on? Would you become Jairus for a moment? My daughter is dying. Come on, people, move out of the way. Out of the way. Jesus, what are, you, what are you doing? What are you doing, Jesus? What are you doing? What's going on? Oh, not her. Jairus is thinking, oh, okay, can we, can we, you know, and he's probably got a hand on his elbow or maybe on his shoulder and he's just trying to get the Lord's eye, you know, we need, to, we need to get going here. I mean, these are real people, they're just like us. And maybe he's, maybe he's looking at some of the disciples saying, can you help me? Can you help me? And they're saying, hey, Jesus is working. He's taking care of things. Oh, he just called her daughter. Hey, this is serious. Just, just wait, Jairus. Wait. I don't want to wait. And by the time that little time of conversation with that woman takes place, her healing, her salvation occurs, 
finally Jairus and Jesus turn to make their way to his home, and what happens? Probably a, a servant or two, somebody from the family comes running up and finds Jairus and says, Jairus, let the teacher go. Let the master teacher go. Sorry to tell you this, but your, your daughter's dead. And it's interesting. I tried to underscore it and emphasize it as we read it. But it's as if as the words were hanging in the air, Jesus stops and he says to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Only believe. Can I tell you? Those are great words. Let me tell you what he was, he was saying. He was saying this, and this is, this is the way the, the language of the words are. He was saying, keep believing. When I was in college, way back in 19, <coughs> a while back, uh, when I was in college, I had a certain time in which I was in uh, real financial need. Welcome to the world of college students. And I was in such a great need that it was mounting up day after day after day to where I was hitting an epic point, of, a pivotal point, an apex point in which I needed help, in my opinion, from what I could tell, on one certain day, I needed some cash. I needed help that day. I saw it coming. I got up bright and early, 5.30 or so in the morning. I went out of my, my dorm room, and I stood and, and, uh, and had my Bible in hand, and I sat down on the floor of the hallway of my dorm, and I said, God, I, I sure want to hear from you this morning. And God, I need help from you. I need help financially. Lord, would you please give me help today? I need help so bad. God, you know the need better than I do. Please talk to me. So I started reading, and I was reading in the Psalms, and as... The divine sovereign would allow it. I was in Psalm 50. You know what's in Psalm 50? There is a section there in Psalm 50 that speaks where the Lord is saying to his people, he was saying, uh, you, you come to me with your sacrifices, and yet I own the cattle on a thousand hills. And immediately my mind went back to that song that we've sung since we were little children. I don't know that your church still sings it with your kids, but we sung it for years. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. The wealth in every mind. He owns the rivers and the rocks and rills, the sun and stars that shine. He is my Father, so they're, they're mine as well. When I read that verse, I said, Lord, you're telling me that you're my Father and you own everything. I know that you do, but you're just telling me as a reminder that you do and that you're hearing the cry of my heart. And I'm about to go under. God, you're going to give me help today, aren't you? You're going to give me help today, aren't you? I said, Lord, I can't wait. I can't wait to see what you're going to do. Well, I had a job off campus at that time, and uh, it was a just sort of, it's kind of embarrassing. It was kind of a highfalutin, uh, kind of a luxury job. I worked at a grocery store, and uh, I, 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 uh, I stocked shelves, you know, big job. And so I had this job, and my thought was, here's where I get extra income. And I was just thinking, you know what? I'll, I, the, the extra income that the Lord's going to give me is going to come from my job. That's where it's going to come. I can't wait. Can't wait. I didn't always get excited about going to work, but I did this night. Why? Because I was expecting an answer to prayer. 
Man, I couldn't wait. I got to work, clocked in, and I started working. And I'm going to tell you, I had energy to me because I kept thinking probably my manager or assistant manager is going to come up to me and say, hey, Morris, we've been meaning to talk to you. You've been working with us for X amount of months and so forth, and it's about time for a raise, and, and uh, we're, going to, we're going to give you a signing bonus. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to give you some cash here tonight. Here, can you put all this in your pocket, you know? I mean, I just, I just saw and envisioned a, a fat check or something was going to come my way. Here at work, and so I was stocking uh, some shelves uh, and putting some uh, pounds of sugar in their place. And then, out of the corner of my eye, I saw my manager walking down my aisle, and I thought, "Oh boy, oh boy, here it comes. This is it." I couldn't wait. And as I'm working on that shelf, and all of a sudden, he comes up right behind me, and he stops. It almost took my breath away. He said, "Morris," I said, "Yes, sir. Yes, sir." He said. Let's move this sugar over here. And he said, let's put all the flour over here in all this section. He said, I think that'll look better. I said, oh, oh okay. And I wanted to say, anything else, you know? And, and in fact, I may have even said, uh, in, anything else? And he goes, no, you just take care of that. That'll be fine. And he takes off. Uh, oh, man, that was not what I expected. So I went ahead and did my work and got it done. It came time for me to clock out and go home. In fact, I probably stayed a little bit later than normal thinking they're going to, you know, eventually come and tell me about the extra cash they're going to give me and so forth. And so, I mean, I had to get back before they closed the gate and, uh, and I had to get in bed in about <coughs> 45 minutes and, and so, fo <coughs> so forth. And so I went over and I clocked out, punched my card. Now, I never said goodbye to the bosses when I clocked out. I just let, clocked out and went and got in the car and left. But I did this night. I'm thinking they need to know I'm leaving, you know. They need to know it's about, uh, you know, you know, you know, pick all that money up and bring it over here to me, you know, and I, I'm thinking they need to help me out. And so I said, hey, uh, I call him by name. I said, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to head on back to school right now. I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and leave right now. And I'm going to head on. Just thought maybe you'd, you'd like to know I'm I'm leaving right now. And those guys looked down at me and they said, all right, you know, like we don't care, you know. Okay, and I went over there and I opened the door of the grocery store and I started walking the parking lot toward my car and I said, Lord, help them to remember I'm almost to my car. Help them to come running out with money in their arms. Lord, make, make them aware. Lord, remember you own the cattle and on the thousand hills and you're my father, so they're mine as well. Come on, Lord. You, I felt like you promised me help today. Come on. I got all the way to the car and nothing happened. You've been there. Prayer wasn't answered. Cranked up the engine. Started driving home. I worked at not being mad at God. I was more or less really just discouraged. I was distraught. God, I really need help tonight. God, why didn't it happen? I really thought. Because, you know, I asked you that before the day was out, you'd help me. And then all of a sudden I thought, well, Glycer, the day's not over. I just made an assumption that I'd get help from my job because that's where money had been transacted. Maybe, maybe there's something else that's going to happen. I said, Lord, you got about 45 minutes. I'll be in bed in about 45 minutes. I can't wait to see what you're going to do. I started singing, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. 
drove up to campus, got out, punched in, got up to my, my room, went to the third floor of my dorm, started walking into the hallway, and when I did, my roommate, who was a bit odd, can I just say that? Why are roommates odd? But anyway, he was a bit different, uh, but he was a good kid. He really was. He was, he, was, he was obviously pacing up and down the hallway. When he saw me, he comes up to me and goes, where have you been? And I said, I've been at work. You know I work on this night. I said, what is, what's the deal with you? He said, come here. We walked down the hall, a few doors down, and our door, our dormitory room door was closed. He said, look, taped up on the door of our dormitory room was a business size envelope that had my name scribbled in pencil, and it looked like the person who had written my name on there had used their offhand, you know, so that I wouldn't be able to discern who it was. It was scribbled. You could discern it was my name, but it wasn't written well. And my roommate said, that's been on the door all night tonight. He says, it's just killing me to know what's in that envelope. He goes, I'm about to lose my mind. I said, it's really getting to you, is it? He said, yes. I said, eh, I'll open it tomorrow. You know, and what he didn't know was I was dying to see what was in it too, but I wanted to see if he'd snap if I just let it ride for a while. So I grabbed the envelope and I walked in my room. No note, no letter, no explanation, but an envelope filled with money cash that I needed right then. You say, but Brother Morris, there have been times I've prayed and I haven't seen God answer prayer. Oh, yeah, me too. What is the reason for that? I don't know. I feel like a kid in kindergarten trying to explain a subject matter that would require advanced degrees to talk about the subject of prayer, but I've been in the school of prayer for quite some time. In fact, this last year, God put me in a school of prayer that i got to be honest with you, I've never been in so much in my life. Jesus looked at a very desperate daddy, and what did he say? Don't be afraid. Keep believing. Now, folks, I'd feel guilty bringing it up, but that's exactly what Jesus said. I seek not to play on anyone's emotions. I seek not to give you any false hope. There is no false hope. There's no question that when you are reading a story in an account like this, that there is something that Jesus is trying to teach us here. And if I can lay some truths and principles on your heart, again, there's no fancy outline. I want you to notice just very quickly that there's, there's a wideness in God's mercy in this story. There's a wideness. You say, what do you mean? Here's a well-known, wealthy, everybody respected, this man, Jairus, by name. He was well-known, and now we've got this unknown, desperate, diseased, possibly divorced, desperate lady. She needed help. Who did Jesus show the most compassion for? Did he care more about Jairus because he was better known? Did he care more for the woman because she was in a little bit more of a desperate need? Who did he show more concern for? You won't be able to find that answer because he gave equal mercy and equal care and equal concern. And may we understand something about the blessed gospel tonight. You don't come to Jesus in your own merit 
and say, I have been working hard at being a good Christian. Would you answer my prayer? I've been a very good person in many ways. Everybody knows me at church and everybody knows this, this situation about me. You may come and say, God never answered my prayer. Man, I'm such a loser. I'm such a failure. I've, got, I've failed the Lord so many times and I'm so bad. Do you not see the wideness in God's mercy in this beautiful story? The truth is, it's not having to do with me or you. It has only, only one thing to do, a faith in a great God. And recognizing that if I just touch his garment, maybe nobody will see me. In fact, I don't even want anybody to see me. But if I can just touch his garment, he is a great God, and I know he can do something for my situation. How long has it been since God did something in your life as a result of you praying, and it almost took your breath away? How long has it been? Many times we don't pray because we're undisciplined in our life. We don't schedule it. Uh, we say a few basic memorized uh, rote words that we say every morning or every day during our prayer time, if we even have that. We're undisciplined in the matter of prayer. For some of us, it may be because of unconfessed sin. You say, what do you mean? Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. <coughs> and I've got some... <coughs> sin in my life that I've not asked for forgiveness and so therefore uh, God's not going to hear me so therefore why should I pray and maybe somebody else is unaware of the power of God and what he can and wants to do you just haven't really meditated on his great divine anointing power that he can do the the almighty or maybe in some cases it's just simply because of the fact that you have unbelief in your life that is, you've been so discouraged, you've been desperate in other times, and God didn't come through at the time frame that you thought he should, and so therefore you got discouraged, and so now prayer is not that important in your life. Or maybe somebody here in this room, your, your thoughts about prayer, you're a little bit calloused about it because of the fact that uh, you hear a story like this one I just told, and you think, well, that never has happened for me, so I guess he deserved it and I don't. I deserve zero. I deserve to go to hell. It just so happened that God did something for me as a college student that I've never forgotten. No, the truth is, don't get calloused about prayer. Is your prayer life a prayer life, honestly, that is a scheduled part of your life? Not only is there a scheduled time in which you seek the Lord, do you often break into prayer during times when you're just driving down the road? You wake up in the middle of the night. You look over at the clock, it says 3.15, you say, Lord, I don't know what you woke me up for, but I've got this person on my heart. Have you, have you, do, do you walk with him and talk with him and spend the, you pray as you go through life? Let me ask you another question. Is there a spirit of expectancy in your prayer life? You say, what do you mean? Do you get specific? I mean, Jairus didn't come and say, I need you to come to my home and lead, guide, and direct in our home. Please bless my family. No, I need you to touch my daughter. She's dying. He got very specific. And some of us, we, we don't ever see God do much because we've not been very specific in our prayer life. Paul told the church at Philippi, he says, don't be worrisome about anything. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your specific request be made known unto God. And the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Sometimes we get calloused about prayer, and sometimes we're just content 
without seeing much answered in prayer. We, you know, bills are paid. The kid is, uh, he's doing okay in geometry this, this year. And, you know, you got job security and there's enough money in the savings and uh, the car is in pretty good shape and the, and the dog came back home and the cat ran away. It just couldn't be much better. I mean, in our home, you know, I'm just, I'm sorry, cat lovers, I'm just joking. But the point is, you're just sitting around saying, you know, I'm really, I'm in good shape. I don't need anything. You kind of get content with life. Let me ask you something. Is God going to have to do something that's going to make us desperate before you get real serious in prayer? I'm not saying tonight that God has to bring desperation to your life, but sometimes he uses that to do some awakening. Do you live with a spirit of expectancy in your prayer life? Have you prayed in the morning and then you can't wait during the day to see what he's going to do? Let me ask you this. Have you irritated the devil by your prayer life? See, Satan doesn't like it when God's people get serious about prayer. Oh, he hates it. He tells churches, go ahead and depend upon your organization. Go ahead and trust your curriculums. Go ahead and trust all of your technology toys. Go ahead and trust your, uh, uh, your, your, your comfortable buildings. Go ahead and trust your education. Go ahead and put all your confidence in those things, but never get serious about prayer. Don't call on God to use that technology. Don't call on God to use the comfortable surroundings. Don't call on God to use that curriculum don't call on god to use you don't it's as if satan says to his demons keep them off their knees have you ever irritated the devil by your prayer life you see a wideness in god's mercy what do you see you see two people who are broken who are desperate why were they asking for help well honestly seriously they they recognized his nature what was his nature? Come on. He was compassionate. He was caring. Are you ready for this? And he was capable. He could change the whole situa situation. They knew his nature. They recognized his nature. I came home from a revival meeting. My, my, uh, my oldest son is also an evangelist, and uh, he and his family were in between houses at the time, and so uh, whenever he came home from being in a meeting, he, would, he and his family stayed at our house, and my wife and I stayed there, and, and so we would kind of sometimes see each other, many times we wouldn't, as we would come and go and that sort of thing. And, and, uh, but I came home from a meeting. <coughs> I preached in, are you ready, Hershey, Pennsylvania sweetest smelling city in the world and uh, I came home with candy of course that had been given to me uh, by some of the folks there in the church well lo and behold my grandkids were there in the house and I, of course after all the loving and tackling and and carrying on with uh, the kids I said hey kids I got something <laughs> I said I got two types of candy and I said to my grandson who is truly that very grand. Don't get me started. I, he is incredibly great. I said, Drew, I said, I've got two types of candy. I said, look, and he started shaking his head. No, I said, no. And I said, Drew, look, I said, I've got, I got Reese's peanut butter cup and I got Snickers. Which one do you want? He said, Papa, they gave that to you. That doesn't belong to me. Now, isn't that absolutely angelic? I mean, I'm telling you, 
Now his dad and mom says, he knows what he's doing. He's playing you. Don't, 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 don't be fooled by it. I said, let him fool me all he wants. I don't care. I said, no, Drew. I said, which do you like? Do you like Reese's or Snickers? He said, I really like Reese's peanut butter cup. I said, here you go, buddy. Get you one. I looked to his big sister, Karis, and I said, Karis, I said, which do you want? Reese's peanut butter cup or Snickers? She said, I, I don't really like Reese's. I said, do you like Snickers? Yes, sir. I said, here, enjoy that Snickers. Then I looked at the baby. She's four, something like that. Amberly. I said, Amberly, which do you want? You want Reese's or Snickers? She looked up at me and she said, both. <laughs> Guess what she got? She got both. Why? She knows, my, she knows Papa's nature. I'd give her anything. Here's the keys to the car. Go have a good time. I mean, I mean, whatever you want. She owns me. I'm telling you, there's no question. That little girl knows what she's doing. When you go to the Lord, do you understand His nature? What is His nature? He cares. He's compassionate. You say, oh, but I don't deserve His care. I don't deserve His concern. No, you don't. That's why you don't go in your own merit. You go in the Lord's name and say, Father, I, I don't deserve this, but Jesus told me to come, and, and I'm coming to you to ask for, for help. They recognized his nature, so what did they do? They requested with nerve. They were bold in their request. I need help. My daughter's dying. They requested with nerve. Do you remember? Oh, boy, talk about dating myself. Young people, you're going to think I'm a dinosaur. There was a day back in the 1980s when they came out with these things called ATMs. You remember when the ATMs came out? Before that, young people, guess what? If you wanted to get cash at the bank, you had to go inside and write out a withdrawal slip or write a check and give it to a teller and say, I need that money and that cash. And if you went on like a Sunday when the bank was closed or Saturday afternoon when the bank was closed, I mean, you had to wait till Monday. If you, had to, if you went after hours, if it was midnight, you, you're just not going to be able to go inside that bank and get a, a check cash or get a withdrawal. Why? It wasn't available then. And then they came up with this thing where you stick a card in and punch in numbers and say, give me what I got, and I want it, and it was available all the time. Now, forgive the silliness and any of the uh, inordinate uh, comparison of the Lord to an ATM machine. I don't mean that he's just someone you can, you can punch at and say, give me this and give me this. But I'm going to tell you something. Uh, the Lord is always available. The Bible tells us, are you listening? In Hebrews 4 and verse 12, the Bible says he is our great high priest. Israel, the Hebrews, all trusted their priest. But the writer of Hebrews said he is our great high priest. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may ask for mercy in a time of need. Who is us? Let us. Who's us? Anyone who's professed faith in that Savior to be your Redeemer, your Rescuer. He is your great high priest. Who is, who is us? If you're, if you're a believer tonight, this is you. Let us come now, the word come is written in a particular mood and tense. It means this, come repeatedly, come frequently, come all the time. Keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. You know, when you were young in the Lord, you might even start thinking, you know, I just, I've, I've asked the Lord for a lot. It's about time for me. I've probably run out at his bank. Let us come boldly. 
The word boldly simply means to come with an urgency and with a fervency and to specifically ask for those things which only he can do. You go explain what Hannah was doing in the temple when Hannah said, I've got to have a boy. Lord, give me a boy. A man, Eli, thought she was drunk. You know why? She was desperate. Oh, by the way, she got a son named Samuel. Elijah bent over and he said, Lord, send the rain. Israel's been without rain for three and a half years. Oh, God, send the rain. He sends his servant up to the top of the hill to check the western sky. Do we have clouds yet? No, sir. He comes back. No, we haven't. He sends him back six times. Is there any cloud? No, sir, nothing. Go back again. Oh, God, I'm desperate. Please send the rain. He comes back and says, there's a little hand of a cloud like the man's fist. He said, hang on, boys. He said, a torrential downpour is coming, and it did. Daniel prayed and got his friends to join him as he was put down into a den of lions. I think I would have prayed too, wouldn't you? He was desperate, and God took care of him. Jonah prayed. Give me a break. I know I would have there. I would have asked for a diffuser down in there. I can't, I can't imagine what that thing smelled like down in there. The fact is, down in the belly of a giant fish, he said, get me out. And the Lord said, okay, I'll do it. David said, oh God, oh God, my counselor. My counselor Ahithophel has joined the enemy. He's joined Absalom. And if Absalom listens to him, I'm a dead man. Oh, God, stop his counsel. And God stopped his counsel so much so that Ahithophel went out and hung himself. In Psalm 130, would you listen to the psalmist? Might have been David. I don't know. Would you listen to what he said in Psalm 130? He said, out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If, if thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. Let me go back to the first verse. Out of the depths... Have I cried unto thee, O Lord? When you study those words out of the depths, you know what he's talking about? He's talking about the depths of water. He's saying, I'm drowning. I'm going under. You ever been there? Some relationship is falling apart. Some child is away from God and it's broken your heart. A spouse does not know the Lord. A relative doesn't know Christ or is far away from God. You've got a financial burden that's it's just taking your breath away. You've, you've got a physical burden that is completely out of your hands. You've got, you've got situations going on and you're thinking, I am in the depths. I don't know what I'm going to do. I am desperate. Oh, Lord, if you'll just come and touch my daughter, she shall be healed. All right, let's go. I see the wideness of God's mercy. And secondly, I see... <laughs> Here's, this is a great truth. This is, it's no great outline, but it's, it's what Jesus is teaching. He teaches us, are you ready? To just keep believing. The psalmist said, I wait on the Lord. I wait, and I wait, and I wait. You ever been in a waiting room in a hospital? Waiting room in the doctor's office? 
I had to pay rent sometime this last year in a waiting room. Not really. I mean, I, I've been there more than I almost was anywhere else. I, uh, waiting rooms are not comfortable. Everybody in that room is sick. Everybody in, the, everybody in that room looks depressed. Everybody in that room looks sad. If you're not there to get help, you're bringing somebody to be there to get help. And you're waiting for your, you're, you're, you're waiting and waiting, saying, when are they going to call me? And when they call you, you, go, oh, why do I have to go? And they stick you and they want blood out of you. And then they say, hand us your wallet when it's all said and done. And, and they're checking everything, every sign and every, everything about you. And they're looking at you and checking out uh, this, this, <coughs> this blood, <coughs> blood count and this thing and that thing. And, and uh, they're, 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 they're checking uh, pressure points and working on everything else. Waiting's never fun. It's never fun. And sometimes the Lord makes us wait. And as this man, Jairus, hears the words, your daughter has died. Folks, could it get any worse than that? Could it have gotten any more difficult than that? Can you, can you imagine hearing your daughter has died? And the words are still ringing in the air. And Jesus says, oh, don't be afraid. Keep believing. You, you came to me, remember? You came to the Son of God, remember? Keep believing. You've seen what I have done before. Keep believing. I, I care for you. You know that. Keep believing. But G No, 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 no. Keep believing. But, but she's dead. No, keep believing. They get to the house. People are wailing and weeping. And the richer you were, the more people you hired to come and mourn the death of your loved ones and so forth. That was a mark of uh, great wealth if you had a lot of people weeping. And Jesus said, stop this. She's not dead. And of course, immediately they start laughing and they say, oh, you, you're crazy. We know she's dead. And Jesus goes inside the house and he goes into a separate room where she is there. And do you not see his tenderness? I love this. He just simply says, says, Talitha, Kumai. Those words mean little dove. It might have been a nickname that the, everybody knew her as. She's a little 12-year-old girl. Everybody probably knew the synagogue leader's daughter. Little dove, little daughter, little damsel. And it says they were astonished with, as I said, great astonishment. And that word could have been translated loud astonishment. I often have thought, would I make noise or would it just been more of a, huh, and nothing come out. And then she starts walking around. And it's not, Jesus is not through being caring. He says, you need to give her food. She's not had anything. For a while, she'd been so sick. She's healthy now. She's, she's a 12-year-old girl. Give her some food. And maybe the reason why Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this, maybe he just wanted to enjoy the family for a while. Maybe he said, let's just celebrate. Let's give glory to God for a while. Let's not let everybody else in Capernaum know about this right now. Let me get out of here, and, and let's just enjoy this for a while. Keep believing. Your fear has made you stop believing and so you've stopped praying for something. You've been convinced that God's not going to hear your prayer, so you've stopped. 
You've been discouraged because you've prayed for something relatively eagerly for the last few years, and it hasn't changed. And so it's like, I guess it's not going to happen. And so that discouragement has led to no more praying. Maybe something else has come along and it's made you to start thinking, and God's just not going to answer my prayer. It's not going to happen for me. As I go through the scriptures and I see where God answered the prayers of people, all I can see are people just as normal as you and I, who out of the depths of their, depths of their burden, they cried out unto the Lord and they often would say, and the Lord heard me and delivered me out of all my fears. You know the name George Mueller? Most of you do. Probably the most familiar story about George Mueller, this man who started five different orphanages in Bristol, London, England area. Over 10,000 orphans went through those halls for all those years. Over 3,000 accepted Christ as Savior. You know this story probably. If not, you need to be. Got up one morning and the workers said, Mr. Mueller, we have nothing to feed the children. Nothing. Nothing. They put all the plates out, all the bowls out, all the silver out, all the cups out on the table. And the children <coughs> were gathered around the tables. Mr. Mueller walked in and he said, Children, I know you got to get on to your schoolwork. So he said, We need to pray. And thank God for whatever it is He's going to supply us to eat. And he prayed a very simple prayer. I've got it written down. I could read it to you exactly. But basically he said, Father, we thank you for what you're going to give us to eat. Because we know you love and care for us. Amen. And a knock came to the door. He went over and knocked on the, opened the door. And there stood a baker who looked very haggard. He said, Mr. Mueller... God woke me up at 2 o'clock in the morning, told me I needed to make bread for all of your, your children. I've been going at it since 2 a.m. He said, I got a bunch of bread out here I need to deliver to you. And he said, thank you. They brought the bread in, and by the time they got the last bit of bread in, and the baker left, another knock came on the door. They opened the door, and there stood a milkman who said, my milk cart, delivering milk, he said, I just broke down right out in front of your orphanage. He said, just broke down. He said, I got a bunch of cans of milk out there that's going to spoil. I can't get them to where they belong. I've got to repair my milk cart. And he said, I need to get all these cans off. He said, can I just give them to the orphanage? And he said, we'd be glad to take them. Story after story like that occurred in the life of George Mueller. And to be real honest with you, if I told you some other things about his way, you'd find out that he was a guy who was known for a cranky temper at times. And he was, no, he didn't walk around in some angelic glow. I'm not saying that God doesn't, God doesn't address issues in our life that need to be addressed. I'm simply saying, if you think you have to reach a stage of perfection, don't forget the wideness of His mercy. And don't forget He says to you, keep believing. I don't know why 
I don't know why I got cancer a year ago. I don't know all the reasons why. But I know that when I was capable of walking, every day, I would leave my house and tell my wife I'm going for my walk. And it wasn't a speed walk. It wasn't even an exercise walk. It was a early morning walk with the Lord. And I could watch the sun rise up on many a Texas morning and I would walk with Him and I'd praise Him for what I just read in His Word. And I'd lift my hands and tell Him how much I love Him and how much I trust Him. But I will be honest with you, there were some days I'd say, what are you doing? What are you doing? I don't know why this happened. I don't understand, but Lord, I'm learning things about you I've never learned before in my life. And I wouldn't trade it for all the money in the world. I don't want to ever continue, I don't want to continue with this, but Lord, I'm going to keep trusting. And if you want to take me home, okay, I don't want to go home now. I want to stay here for my wife. I want to stay here for my family. I want to keep preaching. I want to go forth. I want to, I want to keep going for you. But if, if, if you want me to go, give me the grace. And I know you will. But I'm asking you to please let me, let me keep living. Let us get good news. Month after month after month. This occurred on January 16 of this year. Almost to the day of a complete year, I sat in the doctor's office again. And the doctor walked in after another bunch of tests, after a bone marrow transplant, after everything had been settled in, he came and he looked at me and he came in with a nurse with him had no look of eagerness, had no look of uh, energy, had no look of excitement to him. And he looked at me and he said, well, uh, you're in remission. And I thought, isn't that a good thing? Did I hear him correctly? And I looked at Lynn and she began to weep. And he said, now there's still some things that need to improve and everything. But he said, he said the, the cancer's basically it's gone now. And he said it's in remission. We don't want to see it come back, so we're going to have to do some things. And he's trying to downplay this thing. I mean, he made it so down. I just wanted to say, I'm sorry I'm in remission. I mean, I really, you want me to get it again. I mean, I don't know what to do. I want you to be a happy doctor. <laughs> and when he turned to walk out, the nurse looked at me and my wife and said, <laughs> Congratulations! I thought, Thank you. I'm so glad somebody sees this as good news. And it was good news. And honestly, I'm not out of the woods yet. I don't know what the future holds. It can come back. I know that. But the fact is, um, I got to keep believing and see what God can do. You said, preacher, I prayed for someone. They didn't get healed. I know. I know that. I don't know the answers for all that. I'm just telling you, he told Jairus, I know it looks bad, son, but keep believing. Whatever it is you're going through tonight, whatever it is you've been burdened about, 
You're concerned about your future. You're, you're looking, I mean this in all sincerity, you're looking for a future spouse, some of you, and you want a godly husband, a godly wife, and you've prayed about it. Keep believing. Don't give up. You want to see something happen miraculously with your young person. You want to see God call them to a true godly life, maybe even ministry. Keep believing. Keep asking. Because his heart is full of compassion for you. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Southland Podcast. May the message you've just heard be truth that transforms your heart and life. Christ loves you and wants you to grow in His grace through salvation and sanctification. If you've never placed your faith and trust in the finished work of Christ, we'd love to talk to you personally. Please give us a call at 318-894-9154 or shoot me an email at mherpster at southlandcamp.org. Christ has promised eternal life and a life worth living if you will only believe in Him. May the Lord bless you in your pursuit of Christ-like living. Tune in next time right here for another message on the Southland Podcast.